2: I'm Sasha Koka, and this is The California Report magazine. This week, we have more excerpts from our live show, Dreaming the Golden State. Reporters and listeners took the stage at the Brava Theater in San Francisco to explore California dreams found and lost, and whether the California dream is still alive. We start with Tony Rodriguez. He's one of several listeners who shared letters to the first person in their family who came to California with a dream. Tony called his letter, Discovering My True Self in Modesto.
3: Dear Self, You grew up in the boogie-down Bronx. Your childhood memories consist of steel, rubble, and moonlight over vacant lots in 1980s New York. You also dreamt a lot, mostly about sunny skies, endless deserts, beautiful foliage, surfing with the Beach Boys, and hiking over something other than concrete. And you listen to your favorite song, California Dreaming," by the Mamas and the Papas. Yet, you never stopped dreaming about leaving that concrete jungle to go to the Golden State. You became a truck driver and started delivering from the East Coast to the West Coast. On your way to Fontana, California, you would often drive off route just to drive along the Mojave Desert. After a few years of trucking, you settled down and got married in the Midwest. When you later enrolled in nursing school, you missed the smell of the desert and the excitement of a road trip adventure. You applied for your California nursing license and after receiving it, you decided on a travel contract in Modesto. You ended up loving Modesto so much that you applied for a permanent position. But the distance took a toll on your marriage, eventually leading to a divorce. Even growing up on the East Coast, it was hard for you to be yourself when your mother put pressure on you to be a woman who would marry a man of worth and have a family. The vast differences between the two of you became more evident as you had different plans for yourself, causing her to kick you out one night with only a garbage bag of clothes. But that never stopped you. Once you got to the Golden State, you were discovering yourself and the real you wanted to finally come out. With the unwavering support of your Modesto coworkers and friends, you got the courage to be who you really are when you announced your transition from female to male. You went from a rejected kid with a bag of clothes in the Bronx to a transgender male that works as a quality assurance nurse in the golden state of California. Thank you for never giving up on the California dream. Now I finally feel I'm home in my body and in my new home state. I have sunny skies, Endless deserts, beautiful foliage, surfing at the beach, though not with the beach boys. And I can hike over something other than concrete. Love, Tony.
2: Next up, the California Report's health correspondent, April Demboski, with a story called Her Double Life.
4: My
5: Lin Lee has been lying to her parents about who she really is for decades. You have to answer them with no hesitancy. I mean, sometimes you can pretend like you've forgotten your thinking, but there's a certain energy you have to put behind those answers or else it looks a little suspicious. Even now, in her 30s, she's still making up stories, even about little things. Sometimes when they try calling me on the weekend and I'm too anxious to answer because I don't know what lies I'm going to have to come up with in that phone call. I just don't respond or I don't pick up. And then she'll text them back a couple days later and say,
4: oh, sorry, I was camping, even though she was home the whole weekend doing nothing.
5: Some people are like, you're 31 now. Why do you have to keep doing this? And I, no one can understand how special my parents are. They're just different, even for Asian immigrant parents. And I can never know how they're going to react to something that seems really normal to me, so I just don't even risk it.
4: My Lin's parents fled Vietnam after the war. They settled in San Jose and worked 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. on a food
5: truck. Like, this was before food trucks were hip, you know? It was just very functional.
4: She remembers they were always so tired, so irritable. There was one time when Mylynn was six. She forgot to take her backpack to school and her mom flipped out. She kicked Mylynn's
5: blue Fisher Price table across the room. She threatened to not feed me that night. She was just saying all kinds of things, like, you know, why are you so stupid?
4: As Mylin got older, her parents got more and more controlling. She wasn't allowed to walk anywhere by herself or even ride the bus.
5: They were always afraid of something or mad about something. Just the amount of rage they had inside of them was scary.
4: When she went off to college, her parents insisted she studied biochemistry so she could become a pharmacist. She hated it. Mylin started sneaking over to the dance department. She became obsessed with
5: ballet, jazz, breakdancing, popping and locking. And that was where things really started to open up for me. It was like I left one world where things just, everything sucked and then I walked into another world where there was so much potential and there were so many possibilities.
4: When she was a sophomore, Mylynn
5: quietly switched her major from biochem to
4: dance this is how her lying streak took off
5: the next time her mom called and she just says are you still studying science and I just was caught off guard so it kind of just slipped it came out I, just the first thing I said no I'm not exactly and she said then what are you studying and I know the wrong answer is I don't know so this is the tricky part um, with this question, is if whatever comes out of my mouth next, there has to be all the steps planned out after that up to me getting a job. So I, I said, um, instead of telling her what I was studying, I just told her, oh, I'm, I decided I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> so I just threw that down.
4: when graduation approached, Mylynn felt like she had no choice but to live out the lie. She took the LSAT and went to law school. This
5: was the start of my double life.
4: Mylin actually practiced law for the next several years. But to her, it was just a side job to her real passion. At night, she was choreographing shows and winning dance battles. Critics praised her work. But for all her success in the art world, her parents still know nothing. The one time she tried to tell her dad ended in disaster.
5: Like he felt so ashamed. Then he says, if you love us, you'll stop dancing right now.
4: So Mylan starts to think, if her mom and dad can't understand her, Maybe she can try to do more to understand them. Hello. Oh
5: no, it's I have to, I hear it in here. Okay. She decides to interview
6: okay, her ba, parents.
5: It helped me understand why they have so much anxiety about
6: life. Her dad tells
4: her he was 17 when the war
6: started.
4: He flew a helicopter in combat alongside the Americans. After Saigon fell, he was sent to a concentration camp. But you were a
5: prisoner?
6: Yeah, a prisoner for three years. Did
5: they hit you? Did
4: they,
6: beat you? they had They beat a lot of people. And some people died because they tried to escape from the camp. And they killed them.
4: When he was released from the camp, he managed to sneak out of Vietnam to the U.S. He worked and saved to bring his first wife and sons over.
6: But the boat they were on sank.
4: His wife and oldest son were dead.
5: (laughs) That was the first time I'd I'd, um, seen him like that.
4: On some level, this string of tragedies explained things. Her parents' outbursts and overprotectiveness, their obsession with her success on their terms. At the same time, she came face to face with all the tragedy her parents have had to bear. After all they sacrificed, she didn't want to be another source of their suffering, their disappointment. She decided to double down on the lies. Lying became her way of protecting them, of loving them. Even now that Mylin has quit law altogether, and she's enrolled in grad school to get her MFA in dance, not
5: a peep to her parents. It's not gonna end happily. Like, we're not gonna come to a meeting of the minds and, like, understand one another in this life. It's just not gonna happen. Instead, she tells them her law firm just promoted her
4: and gave her a raise. Thank you. You're listening to The California Report
2: magazine. That was reporter April Demboski on stage at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. Today, we're bringing you excerpts from a magical evening of storytelling and performance called Dreaming the Golden State. It also featured some of our listeners taking the stage to perform letters they wrote to the first person in their family who came to California with a dream. Next up, Sandra Barrocio, with a letter she called, Finding Home and Harvest in Salinas.
7: To my big brother, Umberto. It's been a long time since we've seen each other face to face. 52 years have gone by. My gratefulness to you is long overdue. I don't believe any of us truly thanked you or recognized your unselfish sacrifice. I remember you poking me with your elbow to wake up. You whispered, we're in California. I guess I keep driving north to Salinas, wherever that is. Our papa had asked you to drive the family to the crops of California in papa's Dodge Polaris station wagon filled with all our belongings. You never complained about the four-day journey. You asked me to tell you stories while you drove at night to avoid that summer heat. Look at all those fields to be harvested, Papa pointed out. Signs announced small towns. Soledad, Gonzalez, Chular, and finally Salinas. You took the Main Street exit and you drove slowly through town. It was you who spotted the tall eucalyptus trees at the end of Main Street. You made us feel like we were simply going to have a picnic. We enjoyed sitting with you under those trees. You told us funny stories. Night was coming. You ordered us to get into the station wagon and lock the doors. Papa asked you to guard us throughout the night. Mama, she gave you a blanket, and you laid it on the dirt under a tree. The next morning, you drove us to the unemployment office. There were multitudes of families that looked just like us. It was your persistence and tenacity that made us different. I remember you going car to car in the parking lot, asking, begging for jobs and shelter. You said, I will not have my family sleeping under a tree. You kept your promise. We had jobs and shelter. You left California for Brownsville, Texas to reunite with your wife and baby in Mexico. It's been 52 years since I last seen you. With much love, your sister, Sandra Barroso. This letter is the missing link between a brother and a sister relationship. I thought all I had was just a memory. I mailed my letter to Umberto, and he read it with open arms and heart. Then I shared it with the California Report. Thank you, KQED, for making this possible. And thank you, Humberto. All these years later, I'm grateful for your sacrifice.
2: Our next performer is a cultural icon in his own right. He's deeply rooted in the art scene in the place where he grew up, Oakland. He's a writer and a journalist, and he's the host of KQED's new podcast, Right now Bringing you stories about how the Bay Area shapes the creativity of its artists. Pendarvis Harsha.
1: Labor Day weekend was my last weekend in Oakland. I was moving to Sacramento. Big news to some, as I'm one of the biggest homegrown Oakland advocates you'll ever meet, but in the big scheme of things, it wasn't that big. See, I'm just another one of the 17,000-plus workers making that 90-mile commute from the state capital to the Bay Area every day. Hell, last year alone, an estimated 27,000 people relocated to Sacramento from the Bay Area. At this point, it's the new normal. So that weekend, Labor Day... I ran around and soaked up every last piece of culture that I could get my hands on before making my grand escape. Nearly all weekend long, motorcycles were lined on both sides of the intersection at 88th Avenue and East 14th Street. Rows of two wheeled choppers looked like lines of metallic candy as the East Bay Dragons, Oakland's oldest African-American motorcycle club, was celebrating their 60th anniversary. On Saturday, the Oakland Roots Oakland's newest sports franchise played their first soccer game. Ahead of kickoff, they had a well attended block party, bringing out the scraper bike team, artists like Jennifer Johns and Ryan Nicole, as well as Mayor Libby Schaff. They played in front of a packed house, reportedly over capacity at Laney College's stadium. The game ended in a 3 3 tie, and I was front row as the team scored their first goal ever. Bad, bad. On Saturday night Rapper Boss Life Big Spence celebrated the release of his anticipated new album Boss Life Summer, The Life Chose Me The event was lit I'm talking about all types of artists performed with him And many more were in the audience It was kind of like the song of the summer At least for a small portion of the population On Sunday afternoon. The Pan-African Festival pulled people from all reaches of the African diaspora to the grassy center of Mosswood Park. There, an impromptu dance floor was flanked by people selling colorful clothes on one side of the park and other folks vending food on the other. The whole event was a glimpse into a mini Afrocentric utopia. And Travis Watts, the event organizer, he ran around and passed out roses. The conclusion of the weekend was special. It was Hyro Day, Oakland's largest homegrown annual hip-hop festival. Now I'm talking about hip-hop like real hip-hop. I'm talking about like Yuck Mouth, Sugar Free, Queen's Delight, Pete Rock. I call it a valid reason for real hip-hop heads and culture junkies to come out and enjoy the vibes and exchange daps and hugs, hella daps and hugs. And that's really what it was about. Like, that was the theme of the weekend all daps and hugs. Like, as I was moving out, I wasn't just moving, but I was also reshaping my reporting. Looking to write more stories about the people who've moved away from the Bay Area to the Delta and the Sacramento Valley, especially folks who can trace the roots back to the South. All of it is inspired not only by my own move, but also the lack of reporting on that population. It's like a media desert in the Central Valley, and I wanna be part of the push to do something about it. Beyond that, there is a book written by Isabel Wilkerson. It's called The Warmth of Other Suns. It's the tell of the Great Migration from the lens of a few individuals who actually lived it. And that's what inspired my next reporting. See, I read Wilkerson's book about a year ago while I was living on Apgar Street in uh, West Oakland. I was living in a house that my friend's grandmother bought after migrating from Louisiana herself. When I read that one of the characters in the book had come from the Deep South and visited 41st and lush streets, about five blocks over before I was reading the book, I realized that the story of the Great Migration is literally on my doorstep. Now, there's a new chapter waiting to be told. It's about how folks got from the Delta in the Deep South to the Delta in the Central Valley of Northern California. And I'm one of them. Thank you.
2: Our last letter writer is listener Ty Moses.
0: Dear Dad, in 1954, you arrived in Los Angeles from Coney Island. You came with your portable typewriter and a dream of writing the next great American novel. A year later, your father, who you called Pop, used his savings to buy a train ticket from Coney Island to L.A. Pop showed up one morning out of the blue at your apartment on Crenshaw Boulevard with his canvas bag of bricklayer's tools. He slept on the couch while you worked late into the night at your typing table in the corner of the room. Pop would get up early and shine his tools, his hammer, his chisel, his trowels. Tool bag in hand, he'd walk from Westwood to Hollywood job site to job site. But people didn't build with bricks in earthquake country. Every afternoon, Pop trudged back to the cramped little apartment, dejected. The two of you made uneasy roommates. Your dream was to be a published novelist, the next Joseph Heller, and you believed that California, with its limitless horizons and golden light, would make your dream a reality. Pop and immigrant from Romania just wanted a job doing honest labor. But you both shared the California dream of opportunity and success. You both came here with the hopes of building a better life, yours with words, pops with brick and mortar. You never did achieve the literary recognition you craved, but you did publish one short story in a literary journal. The title was Pop Comes to California, and it was your masterpiece. I never knew Pop, this grandfather who died long before I was born. I met him in the pages of your story. I wonder if children inherit their parents' unfulfilled dreams, because all I've ever wanted to do is write books. You gave me my first typewriter when I was 11, your old Smith and Corona, But being a writer in today's California is a far different experience than it was in the days when you came west. For many of us, it's become too costly, too congested, too flammable to live here. After a lifetime in the Golden State, I found a new home in Oregon. I still believe in the California dream. I'm just going to look for it somewhere else. Love, Ty.
2: Now we're going to meet somebody whose voice you may recognize, but you may not know his name. This fall, our talented arts reporter, Chloe Veltman, brought us the story of a singer looking for his California dream despite the fact that he wasn't always credited for some of his hits, and despite the fact that he struggled over the years with addiction. It's a powerful story, and his voice is incredibly powerful too. It was featured in the movie The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and in the film Us. His first hit, Rumors, came out in 1986, soon after he graduated from Berkeley High School. And now, more than three decades later, he's finally starting to get the recognition he deserves. Michael Marshall, everybody.
6: How you guys doing, Frisco? My name is Mike Marshall, I'm an R&B singer, but I love hip hop. Shouts out to the Tribe Called Quest, Electric Relaxation. You guys know this track? I've been listening to that since I was younger. But since I'm a singer, I bridge rap and R&B. I tried it with this. This is what I got. Today when I got up, I felt sun on my face. It felt like an open door who let the heat rush in. Today when I got up, I felt sun on my face. It felt like an open door, don't let the heat rush in. Something about the melodies I hear, the melodies I hear, yeah, yeah. And something about the music that I hear, it's like just for me, it's like just for me. Now everywhere I go, I want everyone to know that I love you. Sick man, everywhere I go, oh, oh. everywhere I go, hey, ooh, ooh. now we sing to get away from pain. Since way back and way back before, he said that she said, like these melodies. Heard over and over in my head Just like this here simple melody Be-dee-dee-dee Be-de-de-de-de. dee dee And just like that music I hear I can't get enough Never tweet 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 di dee dee Everywhere I go I want everyone to know That I love music, man, every my heart since I was a kid. Thank you.
2: And that was our live show, Dreaming the Golden State, produced at the Brava Theater in San Francisco in November. The director of the California Report magazine and the live show is Susie Racho. Rob Spate was our live engineer, and Katie McMurrin mixed for broadcast. Special thanks to Asala Sanapur, Ryan Davis, and Lance Gardner from KQED, and to guitarist John Mormon, who performed with the letter writers live on stage. Seth Samuel wrote the original music for April Demboski's piece. The California Report's senior editor is Victoria Maleon. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your
7: stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems.